Good evening. You think I would know my cue by now, wouldn't you? You think? It's your turn, Eric, so go. But no, I was just sitting there waiting. I don't see Sean, but I just thought that was amazing, fantastic job. Sean, that was great. And uh, there's no confidence or lack thereof in the Owens Davis family and our young people. Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles tonight, Philippians chapter 2. We are talking about Paul's perspective, and we have reached this wonderful section of Scripture, chapter 2, the mind of Christ. The background actually begins back in chapter 1. We didn't really finish it, so we'll read it as we kind of lead into it. Back in chapter 1, verse 26, into chapter 2. It is the case, as we have been talking about perspective, that throughout the Bible, God's people have found themselves in some very difficult circumstances and were forced by those circumstances to choose the proper, faithful, positive perspective despite the circumstances in which they found themselves. Sometimes it is the result that the circumstances you're in weren't chosen by you. Uh, sometimes things come upon you. Sometimes things are done to you, and you find yourself having to make decisions and react to those things. And God's people have done that amazingly throughout Scripture. You remember the life of Joseph and the events that surrounded that? A young man envied and hated by his brothers, sold by his own brothers, and imprisoned of all the things. And yet you get to the end of the book, and Joseph's perspective is, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I'm actually going to nourish you and save you and help you. He says, effectively, I would never dream of retaliating. What a wonderful perspective that Joseph has. And then there's Esther. She comes to mind, a young lady in some very difficult circumstances. Her people are going to be destroyed. The king has not invited her in. And ultimately, she asks, pray for me. And then she says, if I perish, I perish. She went in, ultimately saved her people. There are those young men in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those three men stood in the face of that fiery furnace at the threats of the king, his powerful position, the decree that was made, and they said, we're not going to bow. Our God is able, but even if he doesn't save us, we are not going to bow to your image, Daniel 3, 16 and 17. I was writing that and thinking about it, and then Stephen jumped into my mind. You imagine in the very act of being stoned, looking up maybe out of the pit as those who are surrounding the pit are throwing stones down at you, and Stephen has the wherewithal to say, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Talk about perspective. Now, the other side of that is that God's children haven't always chosen the right perspective. I think about Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19, after that great victory in chapter 18, it's recorded there on Mount Carmel. Then Jezebel sought to take his life, and what did Elijah do? Well, it wasn't positive. He went into a cave and said, take my life. Effectively, I give up. It's too much. Just let it go. Let end my life. And then there's Jonah. You remember, he should have been excited. The Ninevites repented, turned to God, and yet it angered Jonah. And Jonah said to God, I do well to be angry, and if you're going to save them, well, then kill me. 
It's not always the case that we get it right, but overwhelmingly so, God's children do. You have the same circumstance in your life, your perspective. Situations can come up, or you can make them yourselves, but inevitably, you're going to have to have an outlook, a perspective, a particular attitude toward or a way of regarding something. The Apostle Paul, as we join him here again in, in the book of Philippians, is in chapter 2, and he's in prison. And he has been relaying his perspective about that as early as chapter 1. You'll recall the things that have happened unto me have fallen out unto the furtherance of the gospel. We read all of those verses in chapter 1 that include Christ. And so ultimately, Paul's perspective is made by Christ, motivated by Christ, and maintained by Christ. As we get in the chapter 1 and near the end of that chapter, unity is an issue. It seems to be, and maybe there are the seeds of division beginning to spring up in the church at Philippi, and Paul addresses it, and it is ultimately our first point tonight. Let's read it in chapter 1, and then we'll get into chapter 2. In chapter 1, beginning in verse number 27, Paul says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way ashamed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation to you and that from God. He ultimately says in verse 29 and 30 that their suffering is ultimately for Christ's sake and that they are suffering for his name and he is experiencing the same conflict. It's that that goes into chapter 2 and it is the first point tonight. Paul talks about striving for unity. That's the perspective that every child of God must have. In these first three verses, he mentions it. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit and affection uh, by, and compassion, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose." Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. It is the call of Scripture whenever you find God's people that we be united, that we have the same mind, that we have the same judgment. You'll remember it was condemned in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10. They were divided over who and these teachers that they were choosing. There are four things in verse number 1 which leads into verse number 2. Those things are if there's any affection or encouragement, if there's any consolation, a persuasive address, if there's any fellowship, joint participation, any affection and compassion, that is a heart with mercy and where it resides. If there are these things present, then verse number two prompts the action. Unity makes one's joy complete. It is always wonderful when you hear of God's people wherever they are being unified. Because if there's unity, there's peace. 
there's harmony, there's fellowship. By being of the same mind, Paul says, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Maintain the same love. Be united in spirit, intent on one purpose and one goal. It is simply amazing what God's people can accomplish when they're unified. In fact, it reminds me of the Tower of Babel and why God intervened. You remember one of the things that God said is, the people are all of the same language, and now nothing that they imagine will be kept from them. When you are united, there's very little that can't be accomplished by God's people. And that's true in marriages, in families, in congregations, in work, in every situation where there's unity. But it takes effort. You hear the word striving. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 3, be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Sometimes people think we're the ones trying to create unity. That's actually not the case. The Spirit created the unity by the oneness of the message. All of those ones, seven of them in Ephesians 4, that's where the unity originates. But now that the Spirit has provided it, what Scripture enjoins is you make sure you maintain it. You do everything you can to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. No one is allowed to be a disruptor of peace. No one is approved of for being a destroyer of unity. No one is accepted of God when he is a divider of God's people. How do you accomplish verse 2? By doing what's in verse 3. Verse number 3 has these do's and don'ts in it. It says, first of all, do nothing from selfishness. How do you maintain unity? You make sure you're never selfish. You do nothing from strife. The idea is electioneering or in, intriguing for office, kind of like uh, Absalom standing before the gates and kissing the babies. If I were your king, do nothing from selfishness. Number two, he says, do nothing from empty conceit or vain glory, groundless self-esteem, empty pride, making it about self. Paul says, do nothing from that perspective. On the other hand, he says, do understand and humble yourself. But he says, with humility of mind, opposite of the first phrase, with humility of mind, the idea is to have a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's moral littleness. Jesus talked about it in his first address to humanity back in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed is the man who is poor in spirit, this man is empty of himself. He's humbled. The idea is humility of self helps me to think properly of others. There's this wonderful scene in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah says, when he saw the Lord, he then said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. It's amazing what happens when you see God properly, you're forced to see yourself properly. Next to God, as it turns out, I'm not as great as I thought I was. Isaiah said, I see God, and as a result of seeing the second member of the Godhead, John 12, he then said, I am a man of unclean lips, but he didn't stop there. He said, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah then, after seeing God, then seeing self, 
he saw others. And when he saw them, his assessment of them is not that they're better than me. It's not that they're worse than me. It's that they are exactly as I am. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Paul says, regard others instead of instead of selfishness, instead of vainglory, humble yourself and then take it a step further. He said, regard others or esteem others more important than yourselves. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you're tempted to just make everything the same. This verse is talking about esteeming and preferring one another. It's not talking about loving others. Sometimes you read a passage like that and you think, oh, well, I'm supposed to love others more than myself. That's not what Paul said there. Not at all. In fact, it'd be nearly impossible to do that and practice Matthew 22, 39 correctly. Jesus said the first and great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor. It seems like neighbor should be first. It just seems like that, the way it's worded. And so someone has come up with this nice acronym that joy is Jesus and then others and then yourself. And while that sounds good, I don't have an acronym that sounds as good as that, but that's just not right. No, the Bible says you love God first, yes, and you love others as yourself. You're actually loving yourself first. And with that love that you have for yourself, you're now using that to love other people. But you're not loving other people first, and you're not loving other people more than you. That's not the way that works at all. It's kind of like a husband is to love his wife as he loves himself. It's very scary when a man doesn't love himself. Likely she's in trouble. He needs to start with loving himself so that he can love her properly. But this verse isn't about love. This verse is about preference, esteem, honor, to literally let somebody go before. We're talking about unity. How are we going to maintain it? Well, I'm going to humble myself. I'm not going to do anything from selfishness. I'm not going to seek vainglory. And when it comes to you, I'm going to stand aside and let you go first. Can't you see how we're going to be unified if every one of us does that? It reminds me of those squirrels in Chippendale. They could never get anything going because every one of them, they each would prefer the other so much. After you, no, after you. I would never dream of going in front of you. No, of course you go first. They never went anywhere. <laughs> they were so preferential that they just stood there and kept saying, you first, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first. I have done a lot of marital counseling in my life. Not all of it great. And I've never had this experience. Now, I'm hoping that I can have it before I leave here. I'm hoping. I'm holding out hope. I haven't had it yet, but maybe it's going to happen. Somebody, some couple is going to come to my office, knock on the door, say, we need to talk to you. Now, I would have understood that before, and I've had that experience. Sure, have a seat. Let's talk. And then I can hear one of them saying, listen, this woman, my wife, is so good to me, I just can't take it anymore. Oh, I'm hoping. And she'll retort, no, it's not me, it's him. He's so good. I'm sick with his goodness. He loves me so much. Can you do something? <laughs> and I'll say, yes. Give me what y'all are drinking and doing and we'll patent it and sell it to the world. Yeah, let's, let's do something about that and, impl and replicate it. That would be great. It will have unity if everybody has the same mind. 
Paul says, with a humble opinion of yourself. Be the leader in regarding others as more important and allow them to excel. And then he says this in verse number four. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And we could do with this passage the same thing we did with love. You, you could misread that, and you could come away saying, well, you're not supposed to look out for yourself. That's not what Paul says. It's understood and anticipated. In fact, it's expected that you would look out for yourself. It only makes sense. So what does the verse say? While doing that, while looking out for yourself, the verse says, do not merely look out for your own interest. Looking out for your own interest is understood. But don't do that only. No, look out for your interest, yes. But then don't do that exclusively. Don't be like the man in Luke 12. He looked out for his interest, but he looked out for his interest exclusively. He tore down his barns, built greater barns. So you have many years now to take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. What about other people? I have no concern for them. That's not what the Bible enjoins. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Sometimes, amazingly, some of God's people will say, there's nothing to do. I don't know how to get involved. I don't know what's going on. Is there nobody in this congregation who could need, need, use some help? There's nobody? Is there nobody you couldn't take home with you tonight on your heart and pray for them? Is there not one person you could reach out with a call tomorrow and say, I was thinking about you? Is there no card you could write? Surely there is something, and there will be, when we look out for the interest of others, when we stop merely looking out for our own interests and include other people, unity will be ours. Secondly, Paul says, don't just strive for unity. He says, serve like Jesus. That's verses 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, or have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even the obedience of the cross. Verse number 5 is a command. Let this mind be in use. Really not an option. You and I have to do this. Now, it could be all of the context. Some would argue that that mind begins in chapter 1, or chapter 2, rather, all the way down to about verse number 11. I don't argue it. It could be that the mind of Christ begins in verse number 2. Be like-minded. Verse number 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Verse number 4, look not every man on his own interest, but the things of others. Let this mind be in you. The mind as a stated and focused emphasis, the life's actions, Paul says in chapter 3, there are individuals who have a mind, they just focus on the wrong things. Notice what he says in chapter 3 and verse number 18. He says, for many whom walk, I often told you and I tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame. He says, who set their minds on earthly things. It is possible to set your mind on the wrong thing. Colossians 3 and verse number 1 come to mind. Since ye are risen with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is, and set your affections, set your mind, your desires, your, 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 your things on the things that are above, not on the things that are beneath. 
the following verses explain what he means. Verse 6 and 7 and 8 explain the mind of Christ. Jesus did what, he, what Paul told us to do in verse number 3 and verse number 4. Paul says, first of all, with regards to his humility, he was in the form of God. He was in morphe, in appearance, in body. He was theos. This was, as John says, God in the flesh. The Word made flesh. John says that's what he was. In fact, John says in 1 John 1, that which was from eternity, he says we saw him, we handled him, we touched him, we examined him, we poured over him. That was the eternal life. And he says Jesus didn't seize that, didn't hold it as a thing to be grasped and held on to, was willing on some level to step down to become human. What did he do? Well, he was concerned about the interest of others. He healed the sick. He strengthened the weak. He went about doing good. He emptied himself, humbled himself. Verse number eight, he submitted to the Father. He obeyed the Father even to the point of death. His disciples were around on, on occasion asking, who's the greatest? Imagine that. That God has taken on flesh and stepped way down to become one of us. And he, John 13, is the servant washing the feet. And they're now asking, who's the greatest? He lived what he taught. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, he was quiet. He did not defend himself. He did not seek his own glory. He humbled himself. Became obedient even unto death. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, was his prayer. Now, that same Jesus invites us to come to him and learn of him. God would say in Matthew 17, 5, this is my son, my beloved son, so listen to him. We're to learn him. We're to listen to him. And ultimately then, we're to live like him. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine a congregation of people thinking like Jesus? Can you imagine the unity that would exist in such a place? Can you imagine the service that would be outpoured as a result of that? To think like Jesus is to think like the God of heaven who sent Jesus. And that's what's being enjoined. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly, and ye shall find rest unto your heart. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. One of the great things about Christianity is, as James says it, it is a mirror. And you can look into it, and you can see yourself and your spiritual reflection. And what the Bible describes is, you can always ascertain whether or not you are or are being what God would have you to be. Look, for instance, at James chapter 3. Listen to what James says. In James chapter 3, speaking of unity, speaking of service, notice what he says beginning in verse number 13. He says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. You want to know whether or not you are and your environment is as God would have it? Just check. Is there fighting? Is there contention? 
Is there vainglory? Is there strife? Is there friction? Is there a constant animosity and difficulty in the room? Are we yelling at each other all the time? Are we fighting and bickering? Are we screaming my way, not your way? Are we putting each other down with insults? Is there hot attitudes and difficult words? Is that what it is? Because if it is, well, then the mind of Christ isn't there. In fact, after that, James says in verse number 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. That's the mind of Christ. Paul says, let that mind be in you. Thirdly and finally, Paul says, seek exaltation. It is the case, and we say it, that the way up is down. We humble ourselves, and then God will exalt. Well, that's exactly right. It's intended that way. Jesus was exalted after his humiliation. After being humbled, after he humbled himself, came his exaltation. In fact, as you read through the Bible, that's kind of the way it's couched. He was always going back to heaven because he was going to do the Father's will. And so in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, as they saw him ascend into the clouds, Acts 1, 9 through 11, he was received and welcomed home. They, the angels, brought him, the Christ, to the Ancient of Days. There was given him a kingdom and dominion and glory. When they're preaching in Acts chapter 2, they say, This Jesus God has exalted. He is sitting at the right hand of God, crowned, victorious, king, exalted. That's the way it works. The same would be true of us. How will we get to heaven? The same way Jesus led us. He emptied himself, and so empty yourself. He humbled himself, so humble yourself. He obeyed the Father's will. That's exactly the way it works. Notice verse number 8. Being in found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Became in obedience to the point of death, even the death on the cross. For this reason also, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and those who are in heaven and those on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is exactly the way it will work for you and I. The Lord told us to follow him so we could go to heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If we follow the steps of the Savior, we'll go to heaven. Peter says he's the example of that. How do I get to heaven? You just follow in the steps of Jesus, 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. And as Peter talks about suffering, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. Who when he was threatened, he didn't threaten back. He committed himself to God. How do I get to heaven? Use Jesus as the motivation to continue the walk. You start Start the walk. You follow in his steps, and then you continue the walk faithfully home. That's what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 12, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside the weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. For consider him who endures such contradiction of sinners, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. How do I get to heaven? You just keep following Jesus. Now, you cannot go to heaven without the mind of Christ. You can't go to heaven without emptying yourself. 
You can't go to heaven without humbling yourself. You can't go to heaven without obeying your, the God of heaven. But if you will have this perspective, I'm going to strive for unity. I am going to make certain I'm not the one who destroys the unity. Not in my marriage, not in my friendships, not among God's people. I'm not going to destroy. I'm going to strive to keep the unity. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to have the mind of Christ. I'm going to empty myself of myself, and I am going to be willing to serve and esteem others better than me. I'm going to be the leader in letting others go first. And then exaltation will be mine because if I humble myself, God will exalt me. Paul's perspective must be my perspective. It must be your perspective to let the mind of Christ be my mind. Submissive, serving, suffering like Jesus will lead me home to heaven to be with Jesus. Not a member of the Lord's body you need to be. There is no greater decision in your life than you can make than to become a Christian. It is singularly the best decision anybody can ever make. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and change your heart and your mind. Repent. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water, buried with him in baptism, so that you can then rise and walk in newness of life. If you've never done that, you need to. And if you have, examine your perspective. Consider it and make sure that it's in line and in harmony with the mind of Christ. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.